Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Primary day has come and gone in Indiana, and there were some things that took place. Whether it be Indianapolis, whether it be Bloomington, whether it be in Carmel, that's where that's where I'm at. Uh, there are some stories to tell, uh, including the holy cow, terrible voter turnout. I mean, this is this is really, really, really sad. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. The phone number, 833-468-8669, 833-GOT-TONY. Kerry Thompson wins in Bloomington uh, in, in that race there the, for, uh, for mayor uh, with 3,400 votes uh, taking out Susan Sandberg and Don Griffin Jr. Now, I, I don't claim to be an expert in Bloomington uh, politics, but I wanted to make sure I covered a whole bunch of things where people are and what it is uh, that we ha- have seen. Uh, like, for example, uh, down there in, in Greenwood, we know uh, that the incumbent mayor is going to stay in place uh, for for the Republicans. Winning uh, that uh, primary, we, we saw that go down. I'm forgetting his name right now. Why am I forgetting his name? I know the dude, Mark. I know the guy. Like I've, I know I've met him before. I know I've had him on the show before. I just can't remember his name for the life of me. And it's driving me crazy. No, I'm not talking about Greenfield. That, uh, the Republican uh, guy, Titus, uh, won that primary. I'm talking about Greenwood. I don't know why I can't remember the dude's name. It's totally freaking me out. Nobody's helping me. Nobody's helping me. I'm going to get his name. I'm going to get his name. I'm going to get Mark Myers. I knew it. Sorry, sir. Could not remember his name for the life of me. You just, that happened. That happened on air in, in, in real time. Uh, then you had um, in in Zionsville, John Stair winning that Republican primary. You know the name John Stair because he was an anchor on WTHR. And now he is the Republican candidate for mayor in Zionsville, taking over uh, for the horrific Emily Styron. You know uh, Mayor Styron because uh, she's the one who decided to like scream at her constituents and curse them out because they would dare ask a question. And she's decided she's had enough with firearms. So therefore, anybody should ask a question somehow had to suffer. And she was proud of it. And Democrats were like, oh, this is so great how you cursed out your constituency. The people of Zionsville didn't think it was so great. They thought it was embarrassing. They thought it sucked. So she is, uh, last I checked, is is not running, and that will be the end of that. And John Stair uh, getting the nomination. Don't see why uh, he won't be able to uh, be successful in becoming uh, the next mayor there. And, well, well, good on him. Good on him. And there, there were elections all the way uh, uh, around. Um, in my, where, where I live, I, I live in, in Carmel, Indiana. And and as I often say, I live in Carmel because I hate myself. <laughs> I mean, that's that's usually how it goes because people making fun of Carmel is like standard operating procedure. And I absolutely get it. 
Uh, but I also get that, you know, for the people of central Indiana, uh, they know that what Carmel has built is kind of stunning. Really is. Really is amazing. And Sue Finkham wins that Republican uh, mayoral race, right? Wins the primary against two others. Kevin Woody Ryder, who was uh, picked by the outgoing mayor, Jim Brainerd, and endorsed. And then Fred Glynn. She beat them both. Carmel's going to have a very interesting race because you've got what I would consider not a hard-edged Republican in Sue Finkham. Um... But I, I, I'm, uh, I would argue, I almost want to say moderate, but in understanding Carmel, uh, I'm, I'm not the molt, right? The truth is, if I run for office, I'm going to get the votes. Uh, is that foreshadowing? I don't know. Uh, but I, 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 that's that's not the mold. I think for for local governments, they want someone who's a little more uh, touchy feely. Now, Jim Brainerd was a Republican on, on the economics, but this is a guy who believes in green this, green that, green the other. I mean, hook, line, and sinker into some very, very bad theories. This is different than who the Democrat is going to be, a guy by the name of Miles Nelson, who uh, goes way past that on the woke spectrum. And this is an example of no one's going to destroy the city, but who's going to make us suffer more? I would argue that the Democrat is going to make the people of Carmel suffer much more with the wokeism, silliness, nonsense, and that those things could have... Uh, um, a, a, a cascading effect and a damaging effect on the city. And that has to be, in, in my view, avoided at, at all costs. Uh, I think uh, that that there's, and, and, and Carmel's election, I think, will matter greatly because Democrats in Hamilton County have been aggressive over the past decade in trying to make headway, and they have been successful. To deny that Democrats have been successful in Hamilton County is so crazy. You have to study it. What is it that they've been doing? How did they do it? How do you emulate that, let's say, the other way in other counties, like, for example, Marion County, where Indianapolis is? How do you emulate such a thing? Democrats are outmanned and outgunned in Hamilton County, but they've been able to put people on the city county council. They've been able to win little elections here and there. And one of the ways they do it, and all the respect in the world, if there's an election, they run somebody. If there is an election... They run a candidate. The first rule, if I was a, a county chairman, I run someone for every position. I run someone for every position. I do it. The only way you can win anything is if you run a candidate for that thing. Therefore, you run someone for everything. That's got to be the first rule, man. And I think Democrats have done a very, very good job of proving that to you in Hamilton County. So it, it's not like you, you see someone uh, win, like on a school board race, where uh, Miles Nelson, his sister, is on the school board. And uh, that's, that's how I know about the, the, the wokey wokeness uh, of them and how that, has, that just simply is just not something I'm willing to tolerate when my kids go to school here. And I'm not willing to tolerate it in, in, in the city. I want a government that is keeping taxes low, providing services, and leaving me alone. These are the things that I want. Do not pretend to teach me how to be a better person. You're ju it's just ugly. It's not what I want from a city. Now, if you want that from your church, well, maybe that's the role of the pastor or the rabbi, what have you. But it is not the role of my city. 
Oh, and stop putting in bike lanes. It's super weird. I'm not anti-bike, but roads are for cars. Stop limiting the ability of cars to move down the street for a bike lane. You can find a way for everything to work together, but roads are for cars. Roads are for cars, roads are for cars. That is not being anti-bicycle. People get angry at bicyclists, and, and admittedly, some bicyclists get angry at, at, at drivers. Uh, and, and there's video out there, and it's ugly stuff. Man, just let them be. Well, you got to get around the corner so fast, you're going to cut somebody off, you got to run somebody over. And then if you're on a bicycle, you want to prove how you control the roads, that you want to utilize the social contract as a way of slowing people down and preventing them from traveling to show how tough you are. Everyone just be normal. Just be normal. I didn't realize that was so damn tough. Turns out that when you take a look at the election in Indianapolis, it's actually that damn tough. Joe Hogsett, the two-term mayor, has been nominated for a third term, beating Robin Shackelford by double digits, by 20%, by 10,000 votes. On the Republican side, Jefferson Shreve ran away with this race. Abdul Kim Shabazz in a very distant second with only 26% of the vote. Hogsett versus Shreve. Jefferson Shreve, the Republican, has all of the money. All of it. All of the money. And I only believe he's going to spend seriously on this race. Joe Hogsett has led eight years of, or seven years, of just horror in Indianapolis. Indianapolis has fallen apart under Joe Hogsett. That is not objectionable. What is the word I'm looking for? No, it is not objectionable, objective. That is objective truth. How he has run the city is objectionable. It is objective truth that he has hurt the city, and the city is less vibrant and less joyous than it was when he took office. He did this. He was going to fight crime, and he was a law and order guy, and he understood crime is awful. The city is dirty. It's his fault. It's still a great place. I want to see it grow. I want to see it build. But it can't build under him. He can't do the job. Why Democrats would support him is beyond comprehension. Now, I'm not going to say Robin Shackelford is better. I'm going to say that it's clear that with Joe Hogsett, you've already seen what you're going to get, and it's terrible. It is awful. It seems that in Indianapolis, they took it out on some of the city county counselors because Monroe Gray lost his seat. He only got 33% of the vote. I think he's been there for like 30 years. And then there's the story of Zach Adamson. Now, I am no fan of Zach Adamson. Zach Adamson referred to NRA members as Nazis. He did so in a Facebook post when uh, the owner of Shapiro's Deli in Indianapolis, the NRA convention was here in 2019. He said, hey, come have lunch in, in, in my place. Why would you want Nazis in your restaurant? And he would never admit, Zach Adamson would never admit that he said this, even though we have the Facebook post. When I saw him a few months later at an event, he tried to shake my hand. I wouldn't shake his hand. He looked at me like I was crazy. He couldn't believe that I wouldn't shake his hand. Well, me shaking your hand is not automatic. Me shaking your hand 
and thinking you decent has to come from you actually being decent. And what Zach Adamson said was despicable. But there was a moment where someone tried to make a claim of sexual impropriety of Zach Adamson, and, and on air, I was like, yeah, this is nuts. You can't just sit there and just say something, expect everybody to run with it, and go attack a guy. That's nonsense. I'm going to have no part of that. I have standards, guys. I, ha I have standards. I would not have voted for Zach Adamson. But in not voting for Zach Adamson, Indianapolis in this District 13 voted for a guy named Jesse Brown, who's a communist. He's a communist. He's a guy who likes to engage in the rabble-rousing. He really thinks he's an intellectual. And he took out Zach Adamson, and most probably he's going to get on the council, right? He'll be there on the council. I said, most probably. And he is going to be a thorn in the side of Democrats because he is a commie. Now, if you look at it from a, 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 the perspective of a guy on the radio, you're like, this is awesome. This is nothing but content 24-7, 365. It is, it is like Christmas Day over here. I love this. Change approved. I'm totally in. Uh, the problem is this is where I live. And uh, Indianapolis is where I work and exist. And I don't want this for the city. So it's like, ah, oh, crap. This just... This sucks. A pinko on the city county council. But as I take it, this is for the Democrats to figure out how to handle. You, you didn't know how to control your members. You didn't teach your members how to apologize when they did something wrong. You took every vote for granted. Now you've let the real progressives onto the city county council, which is stunning because they're already real progressives on the city county council. Now what's your plan? You've got a candidate who has eight years of failure as a track record. You, you have elected via the primaries communists and you know what kind of statements you put out? You put out statements saying nobody wants to uh, vote for Jefferson Shreve. After all, Shreve is supported by who? The NRA. What in the world does that matter? And by the way, I don't even know if he's supported by the NRA. He's A-rated NRA member Jefferson Shreve. Marion County voters do not want a Donald Trump surrogate. Voters will see through the millions he'll use to self-fund his campaign and reject his ideas that will put more illegal guns on the streets and create an administration that looks nothing like the diversity of Indianapolis. So, the plan for the Democrats is not to ignore the fact that their candidate is a failure, to ignore the fact that they elected a socialist, uh, sorry, communist, and to call the guy running against them, Jefferson Shreve, a bigot and try and connect him to Trump. I told you that 2024 was going to be an ugly, ugly election year. Well, 2023 has proven it. This general election is going to prove it. Indianapolis is going to prove how ugly it can get. Because this is already where the Indiana Democratic Party is. They won't, they won't try and, 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 and govern their own. No one's going to keep this commie under wraps. They're not going to try and silence him. And most importantly, when he goes full on crazy, they'll probably adopt some of his policies. 
the real question in front of us is whether or not the people of Indianapolis will realize we can try something different. Maybe we don't need this crazy. Maybe we can blunt this commie who's on the board with some other uh, pretty radical progressives uh, on the city county council and go another way and elect Shreve. Hogsett's failed you for eight years. Why would you go for four more years of this? Why would anyone engage such a radical position as to go for 12 years of total failure? Makes no sense to me. So that's the primary breakdown. I bring it to you, I share it, and now I start drinking heavily. It wasn't all bad news, but it could be bad on the horizon. I'm Tony Katz. So the illegal immigrant who murdered five has now been arrested after a four-day manhunt. Additional charges now coming. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. This took place in Cleveland, Texas, where this gunman uh, murdered five. Someone was being too loud. This gunman who is in the country illegally has been deported repeatedly, was apprehended in Conroe, Texas after a four day manhunt hiding in a laundry closet because that's what all real men do. All real men murder children and then go on the run and hide in a laundry closet. What a tough, tough, tough guy. I don't give names. Uh, I know they get reported and everything else, but I... Did I say hello, Tony Katz? Tony Katz today? I forget sometimes. Good to see you guys. Uh, I, I don't like to make martyrs out of these murderous bastards. I just... So I don't I don't give, uh, give the name right there. Um, there are going to be more charges added to this. There are going to be more people who are getting uh, arrested and being uh, charged. Uh, the... The the bond will probably probably by the end of the day we'll know exactly what that number was. It's already expected to be you know in, in the five million range, based on the initial arrest warrant for murder. Now the story here is not that this guy, um, he was firing a rifle on his property. Somebody complained, and so he decided to go about, um. Killing uh, his, his his neighbors. This is a story about what do you mean deported numerous times? He's a Mexican national here illegally, has reportedly been deported five different times. Among those dead, a 21-year-old, a 31-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 25-year-old, and a 9-year-old. And some of them were in the country illegally. I cannot describe to you exactly how criminally insane our border is and how absolutely awful this illegal immigration issue is, but the border's insane and the situation is awful. And I'm working very hard. I had a meeting yesterday to try and figure out how we bring this to everybody. There's a town hall style. Do I want to start doing specials? There's so much here. But if you have somebody who's been kicked out of the country five times, and was able to somehow stay in the country, you've got a problem. And progressives who want to ignore this shouldn't be allowed to. This should be put up in their face every day until they recognize the border situation is untenable and something has to be done about it. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today.
It still makes me laugh that the Democrats think that they get to decide all the parameters of this conversation about the debt ceiling. Because, of course, they don't. But what they want you to believe is that somehow and in some way, if Republicans don't do what Democrats want, it will be the quite literally the end of civilization. The way they parse it and they phrase it. I mean, this was a member of, of Biden's economic team. I think her name is Heather Bushy, B-O-U-S-H-E-Y, talking about the idea of responsibility. Well, we have been watching this closely and certainly waiting for the news in terms of what tax receipts would look like. And Janet Yellen's, um, Secretary Yellen's uh, letter yesterday indicated that this deadline is, is more is more urgent than we had thought. But certainly the deadline was already urgent. Um, we know that uh, this is Congress's constitutional responsibility to make sure to increase the debt limit so that the... Congress's responsibility is to increase a debt limit? Or is Congress's responsibility actually to spend within their means? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Let me bring in Noah Rothman of National Review. He is also the author, if you don't know Noah, of The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. He is also the author of Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. You can find both of those books at Amazon.com. Democratic fishers over the debt ceiling fight are growing. That's an article that you have over at National Review, and that comports with a story that MSNBC did that says, my gosh, the Republicans, their their messaging is working, and people see the debt ceiling fight as the Democrats' fault, and if we default, we're going to blame the Democratic Party. We can't have this happen. Talk to me about where we are in this. Is somehow Congress's responsibility just to raise a debt limit willy-nilly? And if that's the case, why even have a debt limit? Right. No, I mean, if you actually look at the the record, the debt limit fights actually do fairly uh, restrict uh, the spending trajectory in Washington. And they've been the occasion for a variety of uh, negotiated deals, bipartisan deals, over spending. Um, Democrats are attempting to suggest here that this is totally unprecedented, wholly unwarranted, really beyond the pale. And they spent the last month, I guess, just saying that. Meanwhile, Republicans put a bill together. Republicans put a spending bill together, uh, a variety of other uh, programs, uh, cuts to programs, social welfare programs, or re- uh, restrictions on accessing them for able-bodied eligible recipients. Uh, and they got a bill passed. And now they're in the driver's seat. Uh, Democrats should have been probably taking this opportunity to present a competing uh, bill that wasn't just a clean debt ceiling limit, or even if they just wanted a clean debt ceiling limit, like put that put that on the floor, get your members on record. But they didn't do that. They outsourced negotiations to the White House. The White House insisted that it wouldn't negotiate until Republicans managed to present some sort of a of a of an uh, argument on there that justifies, demonstrates that they're united on this. And the anticipation that they wouldn't be able to do it, an anticipation that I kind of had, too. I was surprised by the degree, the fact that they managed to get this through, albeit with a, the narrowest possible margin, 217, which is exactly what you need to pass a bill. But they got it through. And now Democrats are saying, well, you know, we're, we're not going to negotiate on spending outside of the budget process. We'll talk about spending in the budget process, sure. But not the debt ceiling. That's just, that's a British too far. It's a very narrow process argument and process arguments tend not to convince the public not at all principal argument 
when the principal argument is we're spending too much. That's and, easy to comprehend. And you Democrat's take a, position is incomprehensible. And you take a look at this May 9th meeting that Biden is supposed to have with leaders in Congress where the White House has already announced the debt ceiling is off the table. Well, if you tell the Republican Party they're not negotiating fast enough, they've been delaying too long in getting this bill out, everything is the Republicans' fault, here's a meeting three weeks before Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, (laughs) says, the end of the world is coming on June 1st, people. We got to get this done. And Biden's team, through Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House Press Secretary, says, we will not be negotiating on the debt ceiling. It certainly makes the Democratic Party look intransigent and that leads to the question of who is where are actually these fissures that you're talking about who's cracking and who can apply the pressure to biden to get something done yeah first a quick note on how badly served democrats are by their echo chamber in the press um because if they had at least one you know voice of reason in there a tenth man who would argue the the alternative position just for the sake of argument they might have encountered the idea that their arguments are contradictory, that running up against the debt ceiling, even getting close to the debt ceiling, is this apocalyptic event. But no, we won't negotiate even slightly from our position. We won't budge from our position even slightly. And their position hasn't moved, even while Kevin McCarthy's has. Kevin McCarthy wanted pre, pre-COVID level spending caps initially. Not anymore. Now we're talking about 2022 caps. Just last year, last year's spending level is where the caps are in this in this bill. And that movement has not been reciprocated by Democrats. They appear, as you say, recalcitrant. Um, but not every Democrat is on board. As you said, you had, even before Republicans managed to pass this bill, you had Democrats like Debbie Dingell in Michigan, Greg Landsman in Ohio, and Senator Joe Manchin saying, listen, we're going to have to negotiate. Voters gave the the Republicans control of the chamber from which spending bills originate in the Constitution. That's the political reality with which we must contend. And in the interim, since that bill has passed, you've seen some more moderate members of the Democratic caucus, but nevertheless Democrats, uh, coming out and also supporting some negotiated settlement, uh, which implies movement on the part of Democrats who have otherwise been resistant to moving at all. So Republicans are united in this, mostly united. Democrats are not. Their position is eroding. They're seeing people abandon, you know, seeing their their trenches thin out as their side abandons their position. And yet they remain committed to this course. And only, I can imagine, only because the echo chamber in the press is so committed to supporting the Democratic narrative, even though it's becoming politically untenable before their eyes. Right. it, It is always important for people to notice how the Democratic Party can act in the face of facts because they will never be held to account to the facts by the media that doesn't hold them to account. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, by the way, you use the term recalcitrant, stubbornly resistant to or defiant of authority or guidance. I used intransigent, refusing to moderate a position, especially an extreme position, and uncompromising. So we were close in our in our terminologies there. Let me change Yours gears. Yours was far more accurate. Though. Oh, well, then look at me. Precision strike. <laughs> All right, so, so far I've got one, and in the course of the times you've been on the show, you've got 400 six so so you're still in the lead by by just a scotch good to know we were keeping track oh we're always keeping track 406 406 yeah you might want to write that down (laughs) 
You've got another piece, and I originally had reached out to you about it because we've been discussing this on the show for about a year and about how wokeness, we'll utilize that terminology, has infected medicine. And we watch how there are these oaths that new doctors are taking, let's say Columbia Medical School and others, where they're recognizing that we stand on stolen uh, indigenous land and we recognize the disparities in the health system and how we have added uh, to to the bigotry. We see that there is a move in medicine not to actually treat patients as they need need to be treated, but rather treating them under some other guise of what I could refer to as do-goodery. Your piece, the anti-racism extortion racket, is coming for your doctor. It, it is rare that I see you engage the concept of racket, of of the not not even the more the more i read of you the more we talk you have this very unique way of trying to bring about a a position you explain your position well rarely do i see you go full jugular i don't get that noah from you very often i thought this was a full jugular piece right here the anti-racism extortion racket is coming for your doctor what is it that you are seeing that brought this forward well just Yes, I'll, I'll t- stick with the, the medical issue, but I've been calling it an extortion racket for a while, and I only started calling it BEI, an extortion racket, when it became obvious that it was an extortion racket. You needed a sufficient evidence to justify the claim. The claim arises um, from, in particular, just to summarize briefly, um, over the summer of 2020, when just about every institution in the United States committed itself to an anti-racist philosophy and rooting out the vestiges of racism that were supposedly embedded in the DNA of these institutions, a lot of institutions committed money, funds, to reparative racial policies. Um, I'm talking about like Citigroup and uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Amazon, big multi, you know multinationals, and um, these a lot of these were deemed insufficient by the authors of DEI and demanded that they uh, commit to racial audits, audits of this money and where it was going and what it was doing. Uh, and when J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, uh, contracted PricewaterhouseCoopers, no small name in the business of auditing, it was uh, attacked summarily because it had insufficiently demonstrated commitment to the cause of anti-racism by not hiring firms that are committed to anti-racism. So when Amazon got around to doing its racial audit, it learned the rules of the road and hired former Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch to perform its racial audit so that all the money goes around in the circle and everybody gets a taste. It's an extortion racket, which brings us to the New England Journal of Medicine, which published inexplicably an incomprehensible essay whose only value, as far as I can see, is that it puts a gun to the head of the medical establishment and compels them to hire DEI professionals to racially segregate medical students for the benefit of their education. And it's an incomprehensible essay. It, has, it makes claims that are utterly unfalsifiable, notions which don't belong in a medical journal, notions like uh, traditional medical education is, quote, founded in inequitable systems, uh, and that to remedy these shortcomings, quote, racial affinity group caucuses, which is derived from the indigenous theory of an Algonquin term, meaning group gatherings of wise counsel, in order to prevent these students from feeling inadequate in their education. Now, education into any subject might leave individuals feeling a little inadequate because they're surrounded by their superiors who are experts in their field 
and they can experience what this uh, essay says is, quote, imposter syndrome. Yeah, good. You're supposed to. That means you commit more to your education in order to alleviate this sense of, in- of incapacity. Um, but the whole point of this essay, as I said, it gets around to it, is to say that this, the whole industry, the medical education industry, needs to hire, hire and promote, quote, facilitators with a, quote, keen awareness of how racism operates at all levels, which is really thinly veiled code for make work jobs for DEI professionals just so we, we take the gun off your back. That's it. That's what this industry has dedicated itself to. And it festoons itself with this incomprehensible jargon and racially uh, race, bigoted assessments, racial generalizations of people and to ascribe them into categories. And then in order to alleviate the, the vestiges of racism, we need to segregate people into racial groups. It's just incomprehensible and doesn't make any sense outside of an understanding that it is just special pleading for more money. So what, what I have been making the argument about, Noah, talking to Noah Rothman of NationalReview.com, is that if one goes down this road, there is no possible way that medical care is better. Medical care has to suffer if this is the focus. If you are more concerned with the pronoun you use with the patient, if you are more concerned with how you're supposed to word something because this patient has this color skin or comes from this part of the world, the actual care by definition has to be lessened. Does anybody talk about what's happened to medicine on that regard while we still have a couple of minutes and and whether or not these kinds of moves these kinds of decisions these kinds of this kind of pseudo-intellectual pursuit has brought down actual care in the united states i don't know if there's any evidence relating to outcomes as you would say um if there were it would be a scandal or at least it should be there are certainly voices within the medical establishment who are sounding the alarm over um, the imposition on clinicians of ideological objectives, irrespective of their clinical practices and their medical education. Uh, and they're not alone. Every institution in America is similarly has at least a, a couple of dissenters against what has become this fashionable orthodoxy, a racialist orthodoxy. Um, but it has not risen to the level that I think you would like to see and what I would like to see is a wholesale rejection of an anti-intellectual philosophy. We haven't seen that yet. But it's bumbling, it's brewing, and this sort of thing, I think, uh, fosters and engenders more re- uh, resentment than it does a sense uh, that we're alleviating some sort of, re- or repairing some sort of real damage here, especially me- when it's paired with this, uh, with this, action, with this clear uh, you know, request for just public funds, for sinecures, for people who have the right ideology. So, so taking a different look at the same question, are we seeing less kids going to med uh, school, less people wanting to be doctors, less graduation uh, rates when people are sounding the alarm? Um, are these some of the alarms that, that you're hearing about that are being sounded? What I'm hearing from doctors is we aren't graduating people who actually know how to save a life. I mean, that's exquisitely disturbing. Uh, again, sounds like talking to people in the medical establishment is where you'd want to be on that one, especially since it's such a leading indicator of, of, a, of a larger problem here. Um, but you can sense, and I, you experience, and I experience, quite a lot of resentment to this sort of thing. The problem is, is that there are real consequences for people in these industries who stick their neck out in defense of really basic, classically liberal pedagogy. Uh, that, that is a fraught prospect for anybody who wants to lead a quiet life 
uh, a quiet, anonymous life and do good work in their chosen right. field. That option is being denied you increasingly, which is probably much of the subject of my book, The Rise of the New Puritans Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, although in fields like uh, food preparation and entertainment and fashion and not necessarily saving lives, although it's much more serious. Noah Rothman, NationalReview.com. The Rise of the New Puritans, you can get that at Amazon.com. The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against the Progressives' War on Fun. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. I think Noah's assessment of what's going on regarding the debt ceiling is really an important one to take to the bank and to be able to share that what Democrats are most used to is the idea that they can say something, it gets echoed amongst the press, and then that's the end of it. And they never have to deal with the ramifications of reality because reality is kept from them. They are shielded from it by like-minded fellow travelers uh, in, in cable news, wherever the case may be. But when you take a look at the data of how this budget fight has been going, the moves the Republicans have been making, the inability of the Democrats to get off the, the schneid, and, and most importantly, to make the claim that they won't be the ones who negotiate, even though Republicans are already negotiating, makes them look very bad. It makes them look very, very weak. And if you don't have your caucus together as you're going into an election season, well, then my gosh, what do you have? Not very much. Could very well be the answer. Find everything at TonyCats.com. TonyCats.com. Tomorrow, everyone. Take care.